Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series. I am Amy Zellmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I will be talking with Mecca McGregor about domestic violence and brain injury. This episode is brought to you by the Functional Neurology Center, a Minneapolis-based clinic by a, staffed by a caring and progressive team of functional neurologists who are leaders in neural recovery and experienced in treating complex concussion cases with dysautonomia, vertigo, dizziness, whiplash, and migraines. They are the concussion doctors you can trust for comprehensive brain rehabilitation in the Midwest. They've greatly helped me and many others. You can find them online at the functionalneurologycenter.com. Hello, I am Amy Zellmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury, one podcast at a time. Those of you who might not know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February 2014. I'm a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Goodman Project, and I am author of Life with a Traumatic Brain Injury, Finding the Road Back to Normal, which is available on Amazon, and I recently launched the Brain Health Magazine, and you can grab a free digital subscription from anywhere around the world at thebrainhealthmagazine.com. You can learn more about me and find previous episodes of the podcast at facesoftbi.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. And also don't forget to join my Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, to connect with other survivors, caregivers, and loved ones. Today, I'm excited to share with you my guest, Necca McGregor. And Necca is an advocate who works with government and other organizations to eradicate violence against women. She is the co-founder and executive director of the Women's Center for Social Justice, also known as Women at the Center. Their unique nonprofit organization was created for women survivors of gender-based violence by survivors. NECA develops and delivers training to various agencies and organizations that promote better understanding of the issues and focuses on personal and political advocacy for women survivors as well as on ways to engage men and boys in the initiatives to eradicate violence against women. So, Neka, welcome to the podcast. So happy to have you here. Thank you so much, Amy. I'm very, very excited and really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. I just, this, this issue of, you know, violence against women and brain injury, I think it's so overlooked and not talked about and a few months ago I had a survivor of domestic violence um, on my podcast and she shared how for years no doctors made the connection she had all these neurological problems they told her she basically just had MS which they never actually tested for turns out she had repetitive concussions so um, yeah so glad to have you here and sharing more shedding more light on the issue. So Neka, let's maybe start with, you know, how did you come to do this work? What, you know, this is a bit of a passion project for you. Um, And, you know, what really kind of motivated you to start Women at the Center? 
Uh, I started uh, the organization because I myself am a survivor of intimate partner violence. Um, in 2003, which was around the time my relationship with my ex-husband, when I ended the relationship, the violence actually escalated, which is actually very, very common for a lot of women. Violence escalates at the point of separation. And at that point, I, I was living in, in Canada, all my family was in England, and trying to navigate the various systems that is supposed to be there to support women proved very, very challenging. Even though I have a legal background, English is my first language, and I had sort of, I had financial support. I had, at the time, I had resources. But it proved really difficult to access any form of support, any form of justice um, as a survivor uh, trying to support my three children. Um, and really, as, as I was navigating these systems, what became evident to me was that if it was difficult for me, as I said, a woman with, I'm, I'm, called, I'm a professional, um, I had support, I had family, if it was difficult for me, I could only imagine how much more challenging and traumatizing it, it, would, it was and is for women who don't have, who are not fortunate enough to have access to financial resources, to family support, etc. Also, English is, is their, their primary language. And the more I thought about that, the more I became a little bit outraged and incensed at how systems were failing to support women. And the more, again, I, I, the more I looked into it and engaged, started speaking out, speaking up around the issues of systemic failures, the more I, I came across other women who would say to me, oh my goodness, I'm, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I too am a survivor. I've never told anybody. It's, you know, living yeah. with the shame. And the more I thought about the shame, the more I thought, well, I didn't do anything wrong. We, the survivors, are not the ones if any shame was to be sort of handed out, it shouldn't come to us at all because we didn't do anything wrong. And so I started looking at what could be done to not shame and blame, but to change the dialogue, to change the conversation and figure out ways to actually end violence as opposed to providing bandages and, and um, you know, tokenistic solutions. And I realized that survivors were really the experts to these issues because we've lived it. We've navigated the systems, and yet we were not being included in these spaces where policies were being made, programs were being developed. We were sort of seen as broken, and I knew that I was not, and I knew that the women that I, other survivors that I was, I was meeting were certainly not broken. We were incredible, powerful women. And so we started... Um, talking about ways to bring survivors to the forefront and centered on the issue. And that's how the organization was created in 2008. Yeah. You know, and that whole blame and feeling shame, such a common theme, you know, across yeah. the board with um, domestic violence. And yeah. it is, it, you know, we have to shift that conversation. And, you know, I know in your bio, it, it mentions, you know, engaging men and boys in the initiative mm -hmm. to eradicate violence. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know how much you follow American football, but we just had the Super Bowl. <laughs> yes, I heard. And, 
and you know I'm gonna I'm gonna get super controversial here. Um, the halftime show, J Lo and Shakira, and women just going off about it and how inappropriate it was, and and I'm like, you're furthering the narrative. That women have to cover themselves or act a certain way or behave a certain way so that men don't hurt them or rape them. And it's like, no, 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 no. We need to change this conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so what are your thoughts on this NECA? Like I said, I I know I got a little controversial here. (laughs) I don't think you got controversial. I don't think actually the conversation is controversial enough. I think that's part of where the, the problem lies is the perception that women are somehow either there for the male gaze, right? Women are either there to be admired and um, doled up for men to appreciate or that they are to be covered up. Otherwise, men will, as you said, um, unleash their sexual drive, sexual urges on them. I think it's a load of, it's nonsense. I think women... We have equal rights to breathe the air, walk in spaces as, <laughs> yes. as anybody else, regardless of, of gender identity. And I think that when we start trying to pigeonhole what is acceptable and what is not in terms of women's behavior, we are reproducing these um, really detrimental and archaic opinions about what a woman should and could be doing. Women should and could be doing anything the women should and could and want to do. And it's not for anybody else to try and police women's bodies, women's activities, and women's choices. So, yeah, I, I, I heard about the, the, the to-do, and I was, I was really irritated. But, again, it's, it's part of the, the sort of cultural discourse that, yeah. you, I mean, you framed it as controversial. It, isn't con- it shouldn't be controversy at all. It, it's... It's natural. Nobody talks about, you know, wrestlers, male wrestlers wearing tights and and they have a right to. <laughs> Everybody has a right to wear what they want to wear and perform their art in the way that they see fit without being, you know, slut shamed at all. I, yes. I, I find it really disingenuous. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I I have quite a few friends who are survivors of not just domestic violence but also just random violence and rape um and you know they're all like I was wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt or you know like there's really no correlation um but but going back to just you know we need to focus on the men like you know we hear about these school school dress codes banning yoga pants or tank tops because it causes the boys to be distracted. And I'm yeah, like, exactly. my God, a girl can wear a sweatshirt and jeans and the boy will be distracted. Like, yeah, let's address the facts here that those boys don't have the right to that woman's body exactly. in any manner. Exactly, exactly. And I think that, that that's what gets my blood uh, pumping because I have two daughters and, and a son. And to say to my daughters that they have to um, dress in a particular way so that you know their brothers, friends, or other other men in their in their community in their friend circle are not titillated, I find that deeply offensive because the focus should be on telling boys how to respect women and yeah. and have bodily autonomy. Women are not 
grouping men, men had no business grouping women, regardless of what we choose to wear. And to go back to your point around sweatpants and stuff and rape, rape culture is, is real. It is something that is, again, um, hyped up and recycled every time as a way to blame women for the actions of rapists. There is nothing, there is nothing, and I want to stress this with you to your listeners, there is nothing women can do to stop being raped. There is everything men, rapists, can do to stop raping. Women can cover themselves up from head to toe, and they, they can still be raped by a man. A woman could be wearing a bikini and still be raped by it. It is not what she wears. It is not how much she drinks. It is not the time of day. We know for a fact from all the research that we've done in the, in the organization and all the research that we've read from partner organizations is that rape culture is about men feeling entitled. And when they do rape, it's about the criminal legal system not holding them accountable mm, for the violence yes. and the harm that they've done. And so the signal that it sends is that it's okay. But our message is it is not okay. It is not okay. Women are not there for the pleasure of, of, of men. We are half of the population, and I, I, I'm looking, I know it's gender binary right now, but we have a right <laughs> to be on this earth. We have a right to walk this earth and enjoy what the universe has provided as much as any man. So I, I get very, very ir- irritated very quickly whenever I'm in, you know, speaking, and usually it's a man who will say to me, but what about... You know, but what about violence against that women perpetrate against men? What about sexual violence? And I say it is atrocious. It shouldn't be happening. But the reason why we talk about it as a gendered lens through a gendered conversation is because when you look at the numbers of victimized people who are victims of violence, of male violence, it is overwhelmingly women. The 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 severity of the violence is so much worse when it is done by a man against a woman. And if you look at the statistics, not just from your Center for Disease Control, but also in, in, in Canada, actually globally, the World Health Organization has re- released um, numerous stats on this. Overwhelmingly, violence against women is something that is perpetrated by men. It is perpetrated by men in their family, you know, men who are known to them, um, husbands, brothers, and... <laughs> Getting, getting away from this idea that the violence is something done by strangers is, is a huge, yeah. huge, huge conversation that needs to be had. And it's part of the things that we do when we go into schools and we talk about it, is to tell young women and young men that this type of violence is not stuff that strangers do. It's, it's likely to happen in somebody that you know. Yeah. And, and breaking that cycle, you know, I know often... Um, children who are abused often become either an abuser themselves or they get into another abusive relationship and, you know, stopping that cycle. Um, And, you know, you just brought up a good point about child abuse and children. Um, You know, again, that's something, another area where I feel like brain injury is so under detected and, Mm -hmm. You know, I understand because the the victim doesn't want to admit that something's happening, right? Because they're afraid they'll get in trouble. Um, mm. And so it's a lot harder to 
you know, kind of dig down and peel away those layers to find out what's going on with this child who is having, you know, behavioral or learning problems. Mm. Um, and, and same with adult women who are in a relationship. Mm. Um, they, they're, they're afraid to say that they're being abused. And very, therefore, very, these things are going undetected. Very true, very true. But not just the fear. Um, uh, is, fear is not the only barrier to disclosing not lack of knowledge not knowing yeah is a huge area because for a lot of women they don't they've been hit over the head multiple multiple times and they've been told that they are stupid by their partner that they you know that they are incompetent they can't do anything right they don't get anything right and then because of the multiple trauma that they've sustained they they, their reactions are sort of slow, right? Their, their memory is impacted. Their ability to recall yeah, things. Yep. And so they, they buy into what he's telling them, right? So they, they now start thinking that they're stupid, never put in two and two together, never put in the fact that he's been, you know, he's been punching me in the head. He's been hitting me in the head. He's been kicking me in the head. And one of the interesting things that I, I, I also want the listeners to know is when we talk about, um, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, interpersonal, whichever, whatever way you want to frame it, and how it, it uh, intersects with traumatic brain injury. Research has shown that the overwhelming majority of women who identify having experienced physical violence, right, in their lifetime, I think it was like something like, I can't even remember the stats, 95%, percent overwhelming majority of women said that the hits to the head, face, and neck were the most common places where their partners would physically attack them. So when you think about hits to the head, face, and neck, that's where your, your brain is, right? So it's natural that that's where most trauma is going to be sustained. But again, putting that two and two together to understand that the hits to the head, the kicks to the head, is leading to a traumatic brain injury is something that is, Missed, totally missed by workers in the violence, everywhere, right? Uh, healthcare misses, miss it. Um, workers in shelters, in, in hospitals, in service, uh, service provision, education, everybody misses that connection. And so the victims of the violence, right, the, the survivors are walking through life, suffering from traumatic brain injury that is undiagnosed and feeling that whatever way it's manifesting is something that they did. It's somehow their fault, not realizing that it is not their fault. It is because they have been abused and have been um, injured or potentially suffering from a brain injury. Yeah. And, yeah, and, you know, so I'm trying to articulate my question here. Mm-hmm. So someone listening um, that is in a in a violent situation right now and – thinks that perhaps they've had a brain injury, um, you know, how, what, what should they do? What advice would you give them? What steps should they take? Well, there are several things that they can do. Um, and I'm going to sort of break it down into the personal ways that they can take care of themselves. And then the, and I'm using air quotes now, the professional, how they can go and seek support um, from you know, crisis um, agencies, brain injury organizations, hospitals, etc. On the personal side, it's a reflection, 
right? It's about thinking back to, and I know this could be triggering for women because we don't want to relive the trauma, but it's a way to try and categorize, chronologically document the instances where we have, if we can remember, where we've been hit to the head, face, and neck, and to think back about how we felt immediately after and maybe a week after, a month after. So if immediately after you, you sort of lost um, consciousness, right? you were kicked in the head, you were punched in the head, and you blacked out, if you blacked out, that's, that's an indication that there was some trauma that, that your, mm-hmm. your brain sustained. If you um, felt nauseous, for example, right? If you, you, your abilities to remember, I talked earlier on about your memory is impacted. So I say to survivors all the time, think back in, in, in the last, insert how many years, weeks, months since your last um, assault, and think about what circumstances, how, where, when you woke up, if you blacked out and you woke up, what, what do you remember? And if you find, as you're documenting all these things, that you blacked out often, that you were nauseous, that you, you know, your memory has been impacted, your speech was slurred, if all you, you recall all of these, then it's likely that you sustained some type of head trauma. And what you should be doing is looking at, again, personal things that you can do to um, self-care. So... You might be susceptible to bright lights and not know, you know, you can't look at the computer screen for as long as you used to. So dimming, dimming lights, um, not spending so much time on your phone because that not only is that not a good thing on your computer screen, but it, it might actually exacerbate the um, headache that you might be having. So minimizing time on computers and stuff like that. Um, Part of self-care is also seeking support, right? Because some of this stuff, you cannot heal yourself from a brain injury. You need uh, medical and counseling support and therapy. So the next part is your engagement with that, those professionals. Going and finding a, 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 a brain injury association or a clinic or an agency that is informed about ways to support, and not just the traditional, as you said, you, Amy, your, yours, you know, the way you sustained yours is quite common, but the way mm-hmm. we, you know, what we know from our research is that far more women who are in, who have experienced physical violence by their intimate partners, there are far more women suffering from traumatic brain injury than there are, for example, people, you're talking about the NFL. Right? It's a huge thing right. now, uh, football players, hockey players in, in Canada. Research is showing that more women survivors of intimate partner violence are suffering from undiagnosed brain injury, traumatic brain injury, than NFL or NHL players. And yet the focus, the, the money, the resources, the research tends to focus on, again, men, male athletes as opposed to women survivors of violence. So I said that to say this, that going to find um, an organization that, is, that are experts in traumatic brain injury, but the challenge is, are they experts in traumatic brain injury as a result of intimate partner violence? Because that 
um, intersection of TBI and IPV requires a particular, particularly delicate yeah. conversation. Yeah. Right? And so we, um, there's, there's actually only three researchers, three organizations engaged in that intersection in Canada, and I, I only know of two in the U.S., and I'll start with your United States to begin with because there's a flipping amazing woman called Dr. Eve, Eve Valera who's out at uh, Harvard Medical, and Eve has been doing this research for like two decades, right? So, and I, I know she has some really great resources um, available. And then there's Catherine Snedeker who works, um, founded the Pink Concussion, and you can find your your listeners can find them online. In the Canadian context, there are only really three organizations. Uh, Women at the Center, we have been working with some, again, amazing, amazingly phenomenal, I call them my girl crushes, phenomenal researchers <laughs> out, out of the University of Toronto. There's a wonderful woman, a brilliant woman called Ange, Dr. Angela Colantonio, who is at um, University of Toronto's Acquired Brain Lab. And one of her PhD students, um, Helena Haag, uh, and we've been work, one of the centers been working with Angela and Helena and Lynn for like five years now, trying to develop a, a um, an online tool. And the reason why it had to be online was because it it would be accessible globally to anybody. Yeah. And that tool is called the ABI. It's abitoolkit.com or abitoolkit.ca, and it's a fantastic resource because it has information, detailed information on intimate partner violence so that people who are working in pure brain injury but don't know about IPV can get caught up. And then there's information on traumatic brain injury so that people working in intimate partner violence, like violence against women, who don't know anything about the brain injury community can then get caught up. And this toolkit, online toolkit, has... Sort of research articles, it's got resources, it's got information, and because Women at the Center was a, um, a community partner in developing this, we insisted that whatever was developed had to be equally beneficial to survivors. So there's a ton of really useful information for women survivors who've experienced this, as well as for families and friends to help them identify and support. Yeah, I just pulled up the website and the ABI toolkit, and it looks like a fabulous resource. And I also, I I want to add um, the Legacy Concussion Foundation. Um, they are the ones working in conjunction with Boston University studying brains for CTE, and um, they are seeking more female brains. Um, because they do, they want to study this correlation and are women who have been subjected to domestic violence, are they more at risk for CTE? Because we, you know, mm-hmm. we're finding it's the sub-concussive hits um, right. that are, that are um, leading to CTE. Um, so they are looking for a lot more females to pledge their brains. And mm. just to be clear, they don't take your brain till you're dead. Um, <laughs> but you do have to um, you do have to be registered, and they send you all the information you need to know um, on how how to make sure loved ones know that that's your request. Um, and that's the Concussion Legacy Foundation. So 
So anyone listening, um, and they want everybody, but they're particularly looking for more female brains. And I know Pink Concussions um, had partnered with them last year, the year before they did a big brain drive, um, which is an odd term when you think about it. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I say it out loud, right? Um, So, yeah. So, um, you know, I've pledged my brain just because, you know, if, if it can help them find anything in the future, um, you know, hopefully they don't get my brain for another 40 years. But <laughs> I hope to another 50. Yes, so there's that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Well, it's, it's interesting when you talk about the research. We have, um, there's one amazing researcher uh, called Rima Shafi, who, in, again, in Canada, who looking at the connection between intimate partner violence. Uh, traumatic brain injury and um, things like Alzheimer's and uh-huh. dementia. And uh, there's another yeah. organization I, I wanted to mention. They're called um, SOAR out in British Columbia. Um, Karen Karen Mason and her partner, Dr. Paul Van Donkela, who are looking again at the intersection of intimate partner violence, traumatic brain injury, and figuring out ways to, again, support um, survivors and alert the community as to this it's catastrophic because what it does is it, it's a delib- debilitating um, condition that leads, it, it causes disabilities in women who didn't have disability. There's an organization here again yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm plugging. I'm plugging away, Amy. So that's my fine. My colleagues, the resources. <laughs> thank you. But there's a, there's a great organization called Disabled Women's Network Canada, Dawn Canada, and a lovely friend of mine, Bonnie Brayton, is their ED. And Bonnie talks all the time about how um, intimate partner violence is the leading cause of disability in women, and this type of brain injury yeah. is huge it causes huge disabilities and impacts women in ways that people are completely oblivious to so for example yeah we have, um, we have women who are navigating family court with an abusive ex-partner so that they're, they're fighting for custody and access of children um, she's suffering from an undiagnosed brain injury that he caused Right? because of the hits to the head, face, and neck. But then he uses her disability as a way to say that she's an unfit mother, right? because she's forgetful, she, you know, her, her, she's emotional. So family courts are completely oblivious to the connection of um, the violence, the head trauma, and how it manifests in women. And women are losing custody of their children, because of violence that they didn't cause, right? He, he, he beats her up, he gives her a head, head injury, and then he uses the symptoms and signs as a way yes. to take away custody of her children. So we're, we're constantly unpacking how traumatic brain injury um, follows women through their, their continuum of trauma, is what I call it, right? It's not just the trauma of the in-situ violence, but it's after, and how do you get your you, women lose their their jobs? Women lose their, you know, their support. Friends are seeing her behave in ways that are erratic, and they can't understand it. Not recognizing that it's 
she's suffering from a traumatic brain injury. So part of the challenge, right, is raising awareness, helping the community at large understand and helping women specifically understand and then figuring out ways to provide support to the women and ways to help men stop the violence. That's our mission. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Neka, thank you so much. This has been such incredible information. And um, if people want to find you, um, what is your website? Well, our website is uh, womenatthecenter.com, and it's spelled the English British way. way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah, yeah, that's the right way to say it. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. I didn't want to say that. But uh, it's womenatthecenter.com, center as yeah. opposed to C-E-N-T-E-R, C-E-N-T-R-E.com. We also have a podcast called What's Your Safe Word, and it's available on Apple and on Spotify, and the podcast is a hilarious, um, but often not, look at, uh, it's a conversation with other women survivors, myself and my co-host, the incredible Shalina Hackett, and my team, oftentimes my staff and our volunteers, and we get to talk to incredible advocates and activists who work in this um, anti-violence against women uh, sector. And we have a glass of wine, and then we rate the wine. And we also talk about <laughs> we also talk about uh, we do these media analyses where we unpack problematic things um, that's happening in the news or on Netflix. Actually, it's not always problematic. Sometimes it's really, really brilliant, and we showcase the really, really brilliant stuff. So yeah, so we're on, I'm on uh, on Spotify and on um, and on Apple. As I said, the podcast is "What's Your Safe What's Your Safe Word: Declarations of Resistance by Women at the Center." And then you can also find me on Twitter, Neka McGregor, I think. Yes, and <laughs> um, and we have Facebook, we have the organization's Twitter, we have yeah, just Google me. All right. I'm there. <laughs> yeah. Well, Neka, thank you so much for the work that you do. It it is much needed and um, I'm happy to help you shed some more light on it. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. My pleasure. My pleasure, Amy. And thank you. And you should join one of these days. We'll get you on our podcast. We can't drink wine Absolutely. together, but we can, you can drink wine from where you are. And then we can do that. <laughs> a pleasure. Thank you so much oh, for what you great. do. Thank you for what thank you, you do. Shedding light on, on the brain injury and for having me on this show. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much, NECA. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with NECA McGregor. And just another thank you to our sponsor, the Functional Neurology Center. You can find them online at the FNC.com. And again, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zelmer. And be sure to join my Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe. And thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for being a part of my journey. I will see you guys all again next time. Have a great day, everyone.